Welcome to Bill's Big Bag of Onions, the incandescent blend of micro-fictions contributed by local writers and resplendent music you probably haven't heard. My Funny Valentine by Ruth Hamilton She'd been the editor at Carling Cards for the same time it had taken to finish her degree in English literature. It was the era of big cards. Size obviously did matter when it came to love, especially when combined with nauseating sentiments. She was no Sylvia Plath, but any shred of creativity had been annihilated. As Valentine's Day approached, she'd had enough and penned her final verse. Violets are red, roses are blue. Don't be fooled by these words. All he wants is a screw. By the time it went to print, she was on a plane to Australia. Cousin Conundrum by Ian Hornet. Cousins Grace and Ira travelled to Brighton on Valentine's Day, where they met future husbands, cousins Tim and Ron. Grace and Tim, one pair, Ira and Ron, the other. But after a conflab, they swapped. Valentine's Day two years later, they had a joint wedding. Within three, both had their first children. A boy, Peter, for Ira and Tim. A girl, June, for Grace and Ron. June and Peter married on Valentine's Day and produced me, fashioned from the same gene pool of four. Forget the Valentine malarkey. My question is, would I still be me if they hadn't swapped? Trick of the Light by Jenny Miller Maria, what are you doing? Just adding a hint of your scent, so he'll think of you while he's pouring over your notes on Young's slits. What if he asks me about it? You can blame me for spilling it. You do like him, don't you? Yes, but I don't want him to think I'm a liar. You could always ask him why he needs to know about refraction. He missed the lecture. Of course he did. You know he's not in our class. Really? No, he's in third year architecture. It's just an excuse to meet you. Taking Life Seriously by Clay Morrison She's perfect. I get that warm feeling when I see her. She's a good student, a hard worker. She'd make a good wife. She'll be receiving my heart-shaped candy this Valentine's. Which message should it bear? I love you. I don't want to rush things. Kiss me. Mm, a bit provocative. You're special. Ah, that's the one. Honestly, those candies taste like medicine, but they're the method we third graders have found for conveying affection. But wait, I spot her brother in the schoolyard, cheating in Granny's footsteps. Clearly she doesn't come from good stock. I'd better rethink my life plans. Mission Impossible by Harriet Pierce. 
I've got butterflies in my tummy as I tiptoe towards Jason. My heart hammers as the reality of what I'm doing sinks in. He's the most popular kid in the school, and I'm just a nobody. He's engaged in conversation as I come up to him and doesn't even notice me. Perfect. Just the way I like it. With a smirk, I shoot out a hand and grab the Valentine's chocolates his girlfriend has gifted him. Miss, what are you doing? Jason wails. You should have done your homework, Jason, I retort, retreating to my classroom with my prize. Mission successful. What's in a Rhyme? by Minnie Ardo Mark was at his laptop as his slightly older sister found him. What are you doing? I'm writing like a, a Valentine poem for this really cool girl I met. Oh, can I see? Well, I suppose. In life you are my gasoline. You heal my wound like Vaseline. What do you think? Oh, I'm speechless. Isn't it supposed to rhyme with Valentine? Salient point. So how about, if I were with you, I'd be fine. I do so wish that you were mine. Then end it with, I hope you'll be my Valentine. I'd stick to the last line if I were you. Good luck, soldier. Virginal Valentine's Virtual Vicissitudes by Sebastian Toombs As Valentine's Day loomed, Virginal Valentine reviewed his recent catalogue of romantic encounters. It had been an eventful year for him, a birthday peck on the cheek from Daniela in sales. Holding hands with Scarlet from Book Club through the entire screening of Oppenheimer. And what could only be described as a light petting session with Monica at the office Christmas party. But the love of his life, Sonia, the prettiest, most alluring librarian in the British Library, continued to evade him. A dramatic gesture was needed if she were to ever stamp his card... Of course. Moonpig.com A sudden cloudburst forced Valentine into the nearest bus shelter. She was huddled in tears. It's you, he said. Sonia from the library. Sorry, she stammered. I see so many faces. You're crying. I've been stood up. Some idiot sent me a moon pig valentine's card at work. Now my boyfriend thinks I'm cheating. Oh, sorry. Then, silence broken only by the clatter of rain and Sonia's tears. I'm going to the pub, said Valentine. Coming? Anywhere dry would be good, she sobbed. I'm Valentine. Oh, how apt! I remember you now. He took her hand, and they braved the storm together. to do is see you by Tony Pierce. You are mesmerizing. You never disappoint. A long-term love that has evolved but remained constant. 
You offer me a sense of belonging in a confusing and unjust world. You give me the chills and you give me joy. You find the words to express exactly what I am thinking and it blows my mind. You are multi-layered. Each is complex and yet complementary. When you perform, you fill me with wonder. I feel sorry for those that misunderstand or don't know you, but I also want to keep you to myself. Depeche Mode, you will always be my Valentine. Purposes by Rob Lewis. Betty pulled pints at the Centurion Inn in Colchester. Martin admired her from afar for years, her charm, her sense of humour. Betty stayed single and yearned for a man who would romance her and show her some gallantry. Martin waited until Valentine's Day and chose his message carefully, considering her jokes and ribald remarks. Roses are red, violets are blue, with a face like yours, you belong in a zoo. That should clinch it, she'll go for the teasing style. Betty binned Martin's card and sighed, thinking of the old-fashioned chivalry and sensitivity of her beau out there somewhere. Appearances by Angela Cairns The enormous bouquet of flowers sat on the highly polished dining table. A carefully written note to my darling wife, my love always, propped against the vase. She stared dully at the extravagant gift and without thinking pulled her sleeves down over the bruises on her arms. She jumped as he entered the room and made his way swiftly towards her, a moo of distaste on his face as he scanned her attire. Smile, our guests are here. As she rose to greet them, her step faltered, and all solicitous, he took her arm, giving the flesh a vicious pinch. There's a gal works down the chip shop, I swear she's elvish, by John Dew. With a gust, I fell off the boat. No more curry for me. I struck out for sure. Emerging from the sea, exhausted, I fell in a heap on the ground. I've no idea who left it there. A figure approached, silhouetted by the dying sun. Are you a stranger to these shores? No. Do you smoke? Never. Do you always speak well of a lady? Always. Are you pro-Brexit? No. Have we nothing in common? He left. Sodden and hungry, I sought warmth and chips. And then I saw her, a vision through the greasy counterpane, with such beautiful ears. I See You by Claire Kemsley I see you on platform nine rummaging through pockets for your ticket. The barrier refuses to open. The machine has swallowed your escape. You see me. You laugh. You cue to be freed. We hug. Unspoken words hover between us. Enveloped in desire. Hearts weighed down with secrecy. We ache with need. Time, stolen from truthful lives, creates moments that hide our existence. 
Together we see no one but ourselves, selfish in love, defenseless in deceit. We're accustomed to swift excitement, hurried laughter, silent departures drenched in sadness. On platform nine, I watch you rummaging through pockets for your phone. The Nature in Our Romance by Jim Crim. My wife recently revealed that she is a fox. I didn't take her seriously until I caught her coursing back and forth in the garden after dark wearing night vision goggles. Yesterday I witnessed her catch a rat in the kitchen with a perfectly executed mousing pounce. Her legs seem longer, her nose more acute. She's particularly drawn to the more pungent smells in Waitrose, you know, fresh cheese, cured ham and builders on lunch break. But the worst of it is how it's changed our sex life. Foreplay is now a series of blood-curdling screams, followed by joining ends for half an hour. by Sophie Drenogle. What's your favourite flower? I squint, turning to my left. Sorry? What flowers do ladies like? Oh, for goodness sake, have you no idea that I'm deeply into my mindful breathing? Blind date queries. <laughs> Some guys. I exhale loudly. I like lilies. What about chocolates, milk or plain? Honestly, when is he leaving? A plain, actually. I close my eyes, thankful to hear the door closing behind him. At my following sauna booking, the smiling receptionist hands me a beautifully wrapped package and a bouquet. From a mystery guest who checked out today. I'm confused. Valentine's Day? She winks.
Persuasion by Bonk McPhee. It became jarringly obvious after last year's breakup that I assumed that when single, my primary focus should be the pursuit of romance. Netflix and Amazon Prime broadened this. I am now able to act desperately within any culture, gender or lifestyle and in high-definition colour. But that yearning voice that wants dating apps and speed dating is not mine. This parasitic entity was contracted after a lifetime of being force-fed ghostly figures of the unattached. Without them, a vast cultural heritage disappears in a puff of smoke. So last night, I set light to my beloved Jane Austen collection. Valentine's Date by Harry Vosges Happy Valentine's, my love. How shall we celebrate? For it has been almost a year since we had our first date. We could buy some snacks and wine, if that sounds good to you. I hear the shops are full again, the reason for the queues. We could go up to the park if you don't mind the cold, where we can sit six feet apart and watch the police patrols. And I will want to hold your hand, but can't, or there'll be trouble. Maybe next year things will be different, my love, if the council approves our bubble. Merge by Simon Grinham. Modern lovers meet daily online, soaring down hidden canyons or running across pixelated beaches. In the metaverse, you can be whoever whatever and wherever you please. His moods and prejudices, her opinions and preferences were noted as algorithms took control. Words weaved and merged until they were unsure which were their own anymore. In the real world, he was being eaten away and when he died, she never went to the funeral but still they meet in those old familiar places and talk as though nothing had changed. Theirs was a love not hindered by touch, consummated in pure code. Wine by Asiya Fatima Azara. The city lights of Sudirman took her breath away, but all she thought about was her mother in the living room waiting for her to come home. She looked at his hand on the steering wheel, red and trembling. The hand reached for hers, and after a while, everything felt right. She laughed at the fond memories of them together. The idea of losing him scared her a lot. He stopped the car. You know that I love you, and I never mean to hurt you, right? He said. I know, she answered, while wiping blood off her busted lip.
My Sullen Valentine by Joanne Abberton. Furious, she told him he'd forgotten. Again! Why he didn't put a reminder on his phone, she didn't know. Trouble was, he didn't care enough. Bemused, he asked what he'd forgotten. An incredulous look. Perhaps some clues might help? The near-empty Chardonnay in the fridge? He shrugged. A plastic rose between her teeth? A head shake. The menu from the letter rack? Um, the last Christmas quality street? Zilch. A spray of Coco Chanel? Nope. Finally, exasperated, she threw the lot to the floor and stormed out. Bottles, flowers, pieces of paper, wrappings, something smelly, all discarded. Ah, got it. Bin day. Close to her chest by Yvonne Peeney. Over 23 years, she'd kept them all in a decorated box, their cherished envelopes ribbon-bound. From the mid-teen, shy, jokey ones, through the wistful yearning of separated university years, to the ardent declarations of the grown-up lover. Every word carefully weighed, testimony to an enduring passion. Now married for eight years, and blessed with three healthy children, he was still, and would always be, her grand amour. Occasionally she undid the ribbon and read them, experiencing an exquisite pang as she reflected. Would things have been different if she'd sent them? Body Language by Danny Giza. Smooth, unblemished thighs was what Mickey looked for. He had been staring intently at legs, then thighs, all morning. Higher up the legs was much more interesting. Sure, the thickness of the limb was important, and if slightly overgenerous, was a pleasing bonus. But thighs were different, more distinctive, more exciting. Firmness that could be judged just by a quick glance, pleasure gauged in just a momentary peak. Not too saggy, but not too tight. Symmetry, stability. Strength. Mickey sighed. The afternoon ahead, staring at breasts. Life was never dull as a quality control inspector at the chicken packing factory. Posterity Syndrome by Tom Woolsey They sat across the table, exchanging fixed stares with great solemnity. Well, they would have been looking into each other's eyes, but for the mobile phones they were holding in front of their faces, each pointing at the other. What we lose in terms of spontaneity will gain in terms of precious documentation, he said. Indeed, she agreed, carefully raising her other hand and touching the mobile phone's screen to adjust the focus. Well then, she said. Right then, he said. Ready? She nodded from behind the phone. Ready. Will you marry me? He asked. Yes, I will, she said.
Sure Valentine by Paul Hooper. I made the mistake of saying that Valentine's Day is nothing but a crass commercial rip-off. My favourite barmaid stopped pulling my pint and fixed me with a stare so searing, so pitiless, I could feel the frostbite forming on my cheeks. Didn't I realise that Valentine's Day is a chance to bring love back into the world, a chance to spoil the people you love, a chance to push back the grim tide of life, however briefly? She finished pulling my pint and stalked off. So now I'm making a list. Wife? Daughter? Think I'd better add my favourite barmaid. Ultimate Sacrifice by Ellie Rose A slight figure, not yet woman, more than child, ascended the hewn steps, her gaze fixed on the monolith granite clock. It crumbled as she watched, chunks of dark rock falling from the dial, to the wasteland below. The days, the hours, were numbered. Her step faltered as she looked back. Unfollowed, she moved on resolute. A pure love, legend said, to save this dying planet. Untainted, joyous and hopeful. A love like theirs. The clock absorbed her gamine figure, satisfied. She lost form and faded, the hands of the clock stilled, and the glow of a new sun rose. Perspective by Ian Sayers Valentine sat in the cold, dark cell, awaiting his execution. His body was battered and bruised. The pain was unremitting. Then the Archangel Gabriel appeared. Fear not, he said. Though your pain may be great, may a vision of your legacy bring you succor in your time of need. And in his mind's eye, he was transported thousands of years into the future. He saw the cards, the chocolates, the champagne, the single red roses, the lavish meals. And as he saw this universal public profession of love, tears flowed into his eyes and he thought, haven't I suffered enough already? Protective Layer by Tabitha White 31 minutes late. I'm soaked through. Laura, it's pissing it down, he laughs as he tries to grab my hand. I refuse. Good. In the past, I would have given in, and within moments we'd be holding hands and splashing in puddles. I can't be that person anymore. I spent six months building up a protective layer and I'm not about to let that go to waste. You used to be fun! It all washes over me. Today, the rain is my friend and I walk away welcoming its soggy embrace. Wonderful, chilling precipitation. Something I can rely on. Valentine Street Station by Adrian Cohen. We share a tube train every morning. We laugh and cry at the same things on the TV. You have that hat on on a Monday. I see you smiling on a Friday afternoon. 
And this is our city that we always see. Bed sits so seedy and old factories. And this is your stop. You'll be getting off. See you tomorrow. I'll be here tomorrow because I'm the answer to your question. I'm the mystery man in your dreams. But I don't even know your name. We've never even spoken before. Why must I long for the same things day after day? How the Other Half Loves by Harry Pelham Lord Withers peered over the twin domes of his breakfast eggs and assessed the void between himself and Lady Withers. She poked her egg suspiciously, as though it might explode. What had been his last words to her? Pass the marmalade, dear, perhaps. It was too long ago to remember. Satisfied with its veracity, Lady Withers demolished her egg in three deft scoops, quaffed her coffee, rose, and left with a haughty drawing room if I'm needed. Withers bent to the task of tackling his eggs, content that at least she was talking to him today. Happy Valentine. He mumbled. Regret by Johan Chiswell Green. We had large times, fine times, times of inexplicable empathy and mutual flow. Her presence, the one indissoluble goodness in my life, in the adopted city, our hearts fluttering like pigeon wings every time we met. But time sticks like Wellington boots, and I remembered the time before, when, at the point of no return, I was the spurned lover, the cast-off shoes. So, despite the truth of this relationship, I could not shake myself of an awful feeling of entrapment. Much as when you find yourself living on Valentine Island, where you know there is no doctor. We split Note to Self by Barbara Toucan It feels as if we're alone in the noisy crowd, cocooned in our conversation and attraction. Another? He gestures to the bartender. His smile melts me like a long hug. He invites me out on Friday. I tingle all over, so excited I slip off to the toilet to calm down. My phone pings with a WhatsApp message. From who? My name. What's happening? Photo of a battered face in a hospital bed with tubes. Mine. Lynn, I'm you in 2026. James did this to me. Four years of hell. Run away, quick. I head for the fire escape. The Girl Next Door by Satsuma Clark She's definitely interested. She comes round with the feeblest excuses, 
borrowing sugar, bringing scones, all dressed up, shiny-eyed and nervous. Time to take action. Hands in my pockets to conceal the shaking. Uh, hey, Jessica, are, <clears throat> are you going to the uh, disco at St. Margaret's tonight? Great, we could walk down together if you like. Okay, see you there. I wander casually around the dance floor, pretending not to search for her. Eventually, I spot her sneaking out of the back door. Weird, I didn't think she smoked. My mouth dries and my throat tightens. She is snogging my sister. My toxic in-laws called me the Black Widow, convinced that I'd murdered my husband, Michael, to cash in on his life insurance policy. It was ridiculous. I'll admit I can imagine scamming a big, rich company that wouldn't miss the money. But the very idea that I could murder the love of my life. <laughs> Insane! This cruelest kind of slander stung all the more when their nasty emails arrived every Valentine's Day. I went down into the cellar. The table was set. Candles, chocolates, wine. Shackles clinking, Michael's emaciated figure stepped from the shadows and gave me a big hug. by Phil Boast. How may I count the special moments? The times when we laughed together or cried together, when life was not always kind or easy, but somehow we always found our way together and through it all back to happiness again. Cold winter's nights and warm summer days, time with friends and time alone together, traveling the world in search of all its wonders. So many moments and so much life and love and how can I count them all, when all of the special moments in my life are all the moments that I've spent with you? Big Bag of Onions is a guppy production for Cone Radio and is committed to a varied, equitable and truly inclusive output that properly reflects the ethnic diversity of our community audience. Where in hell can you go? Far from 
with things that you know Far from the sprawl of concrete that keeps crawling its way Keep your heart off your sleeve Guppy Productions presents Series 2 of From Colchester to Sulawesi Written for Colm Radio by Phil Boast and Paula Larcher Episode 5 of 6 The Missing Documents The Polder, or Monado Police Headquarters, is a large, stark, imposing building, the inside of which it's best not to see, unless your need is great. The long, echoing corridors, which, in common with all of the government offices we have visited, would benefit from an investment in some paint, a piled high with boxes of forms which you don't want to see either, but there they are, awaiting their next unwary recipient. The police work rather differently here than in our former home. In the first place, it's a Monday to Friday operation. Nothing is done at weekends, and Friday is sports day, so not much goes on then either. And on Monday morning, they have the weekly flag-raising ceremony. Thus, may we rest content in the knowledge that our police force are relaxed and fit as they go about their work from about Monday lunchtime to sometime on Thursday afternoon. During this time, they may occasionally be seen out and about whistling loudly at traffic queues for no immediately apparent reason. But beyond that, anything which is needed of a more investigative nature must be paid for. Generally speaking, minor offences such as theft are dealt with at village level, either by fisticuffs between individuals or families, or by intervention of the head of village. Or if that doesn't work, by the Lura, who is a head of a group of local villages. The police are summoned only as a last resort, and on the whole are not welcome in the villages. In any case, upon arrival at the polder, we are guided through the warren of rooms and passageways by Tom to a small, shabby back room, where, aside from Aris, Tom and ourselves, we are surprised to be introduced to the head of district police and three other high-ranking officers, one of whom is called Amelia. Amelia speaks perfect English, and we regale her in detail with the events of the previous day, which Tom will have already outlined when setting up the interview. So, Amelia interprets, and Aris bears witness to all that went on at Oni's house. The incident with the petrol and the threat of violence against Paula are all taken very seriously. But what is also of particular interest to the officers is the amount of money that we have left for and sent to Oni over the last 18 months or so. To us, this is quite unimportant and, in any case, off the point. We have a lodge to show for it, the costs have in the end not really exceeded our expectations, and we have no quarrel with Oni in this regard. Nevertheless, I am dispatched to collect evidence of money transfers and accounts relating to the building works, administration and so on, which seems to me to be a bit of a waste of time. But if it adds fuel to the fire of our case, then so be it. So, Aris and I leave, and on the way, on this day of all days, the jeep breaks down, and Aris collars the next unsuspecting and anonymous passing motorcyclist, and instructs him to take me the rest of the way to the lodge. Meanwhile, Aris fixes the jeep and some time later we return to the police HQ with the required paperwork, and this looks set to be a long day. In Phil's absence, and why the hell has he gone for so long, I am questioned at great length about our relationship with Oni. I show them the text message which Oni sent, and pending Phil's return with the accounts, it is agreed by all that the land and so on is Oni's in name only and only for legal reasons, and that he must return all documents to us. 
I play up the fact that Oni threatened to attack me and how unhappy I now feel about the idea of seeing him again and our concerns as to what he might now do in his current state of mind. Phil finally returns and the next hour or so is spent going over the figures and money transfers in detail and much ado is made of this. At the end, it is agreed that Oni must be summoned to a meeting with all present and that in the meantime, Tom and another officer will be stationed at the lodge 24 hours a day to provide protection for us. And so ends the first interview, and we step out into the free Minado air, somewhat more than seven arduous hours after first entering the building. The high-ranking police presence at the interview, and all that has transpired, are indications that everyone is taking the matter very seriously indeed and in any case more seriously than we had expected. And in truth, in some respects, probably more seriously than our Phil and I. We don't really think that Ollie would dare come to the lodge again with his petrol can, and I may have overdone the frightened female a bit, but there it is. And we will have a couple of police minders, which we will, of course, have to pay for. In the meantime, Newman has told Benjamin, the headman, all about the matter. And Yeoman has decided that he will also sleep at the lodge just to give us some extra protection. And the whole village is now on high alert. So we feel fairly safe as we go about our more normal lives and wait to be summoned again. The only difference for now being that wherever we go, we have a policeman with us. Now walking back down this mountain the strength of a turning tide Oh, the wind's so soft at my skin Yeah, the sun's so hot upon my side All oh, looking out at this happiness I search for between the sheets Oh, feeling blind But realize all I was searching for was me Oh, oh, oh all I was searching for was me Two days later, after the first interview, we are summoned again to the polder, and this time Oni is present. He is questioned at length, and he lies. He denies threatening Paula or pouring petrol on the jeep, and says that we have paid him no money for the work that he has done for us in overseeing the building of the lodge, sorting out our work permits, and so on. When questioned as to how he has lived for the past months, and how he has a new house, however, he is unable to provide any answers. We should, in retrospect, have made payments to Oni more official and structured, but we are new to all of this and never expected things to come to such a pass. The police by now have photocopies of all financial transactions, bank statements and so on, and we have Aris to bear witness to the events of the fateful day, so Oni is making things worse for himself. To admit his actions and to apologise would have been the sensible thing to do, and that may have been an end to the matter in terms of his fairly minor criminal activities, 
but now he has also lied to the police, which in itself is a serious offence, and for that alone he could be imprisoned. The aspect of all this which is still of most concern to us, however, is the return of our documents, and Oni is given one week to present himself and the documents to the polder, which he agrees to do, since he doesn't now have much choice in the matter. He is told that he must not go to the lodge or attempt to make contact with us, and there, finally, the second interview is ended. Oni has been in a high state of agitation and sometimes angry emotion throughout, and has made no eye contact with us, whereas we have played the calm, aggrieved party, and this has worked in our favour. We are in any case now well past any amicable end to all of this, but we have a sense that things are moving our way, and have made contacts in high places within the Milado Police Department, which is no bad thing for our future life that we may have here. Amelia in particular has quickly become a friend and has taken our side. Our relationship with Oni, on the other hand, is now officially broken. And as we leave the room, our expectation, and indeed now our hope, is that we will not see him again. During the days that we wait for news of our documents, more ordinary things are happening. I mean, just about everything that happens here is still new to us, and we've been living here for less than a month by now, although it's starting to feel like longer. But I suppose in terms of ordinariness, everything is relative. We have guests to look after, for one thing, and have to go about the place as if we don't have a care in the world and know exactly what's going on at all times. We are also contacted by Albert, who was our driver during our early dealings with Oni who says that he will bear testament against Oni for things that went on during our long absences. We thank him and say that we will let him know if we need him, but actually we would prefer not to make things more complicated and depressing than they already are. Another quite ordinary thing that happens is that we employ Raymond, brother to Newman and Tom, as our kaboon or gardener. Raymond can also drive, which gives us a second driver if Aris isn't around. So, we have our fourth permanent staff member. And now, assuming that we get through all of this, we will have all aspects of the upkeep and maintenance of the lodge covered. And regarding Oni and our missing documents, all we can do for now is wait and hope for the best. Motherland, me Close my eyes, lullaby me Keep me safe, lie with me, stay beside me, don't go Don't you go Find out what happens when we return to the adventures of Phil and Paula in Sulawesi in next week's episode of Bill's Big Bag of Onions, here on Cone Radio. soon on Cone Radio. Box 39 investigates. That's right. The Box 39 investigates team has been comparing doctors' terrible handwriting in Wivenhoe and Colchester, up close and personal, to that of doctors in Mumbai, Johannesburg, and across the road from the Hyatt Regency Hotel in the Cayman Islands. We visited each and every one of them. Paris, Rome, Tokyo too. Even a doctor at Miami's Disney World. You will be shocked by the universal truth that we have uncovered. Coming soon to Cone Radio, as already said, at the beginning of this promo.